judiciary is a little bit of a stodgy institution, right? You know, we like, we do things the way we do them, but, but this is pushing us out of our comfort zone. And I was on a conference call with the Chief Justice of Michigan uh, a little while back, and her phrase was, maybe there's some lemonade in this lemon. You know, maybe we really will improve things. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of season four of Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your host, Justin Talesnik. Today, we're diving into an extremely topical subject, management of a court docket in the middle of a pandemic. And who better to help us navigate this topic than two federal judges confronting this question in real time. Today, we're joined by Chief Judge Diane Wood of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and Judge Michael Scudder, also of the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, the University of Chicago Law Review and the Seventh Circuit both take social distancing very seriously, so we are of course recording this remotely. But Chief Judge Wood and Judge Scudder, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Briefly. We're glad to be here. Thank you for having us. So let's start off with the basics here. Have courts been able to continue operations during this pandemic? Well, I'll begin by saying yes. Uh, Unequivocally at the Court of Appeals, we are probably at least at 80, if not 90 percent capacity. And I've been on a loop with the seven chief district judges in our circuit, and they are all doing everything they can to move things forward. Although in their case, um, some things are, are being handled by being postponed and others can be done now. It kind of sounds like you've managed to keep most court functions going, but it also sounds like you feel that your court is still missing something due to the crisis. So what is it that's lost right now, in your opinion? We divide our cases into two piles, basically. One pile we handle on the briefs, and those are largely cases brought by pro se litigants. The other pile are cases uh, for which we have oral argument. Oral argument has changed profoundly. It's being done largely by telephone at this point. And there are some cases, including some extremely complex commercial cases, criminal cases that might involve seven or eight or nine defendants, where the parties have felt fairly strongly that they need that in-person ability to communicate with each other as the argument is going on. And our panels have understood that argument, they've accepted that argument, they have allowed for postponements in those cases. Most cases where it's just A versus B and you just have one lawyer on each side, though, are, I think, working quite well with with the audio. If you think about the nature of the work that we do on a circuit court and you look at our docket just in the ordinary course, not in these extraordinary times, I think it's fair to say that we we really um, see few emergencies, or at least that's been my experience since joining the court. Um, do we see some? Yes, absolutely. But our mainstay, as Chief Judge Wood is indicating, are just appeals in the ordinary course that um, are immensely important to the parties, but that don't have such time sensitivity to really put us in kind of an emergency decision-making mode, if you will. And so I don't know that there's any um, any silver lining whatsoever to the pandemic, but I just say all of that to observe that with the, with the circuit court, we can adapt and adjust and keep our cases flowing, arguments being heard, albeit telephonically, 
as Chief Judge Wood is indicating, and issuing opinions without terrible amounts of um, disruption to just the way we would handle our ordinary business. Got it. So what about district courts then? How do the challenges facing district courts differ from those that you were just describing at the circuit court level? You know, maybe to inject a little bit of um, com- uh, comedy into this, my kids think my job is the most boring job in the world because it's just reading and writing. You know, all of all of the action is really in the district court. And I, I spoke yesterday in preparation for this to one of our colleagues that's on the district court. And that judge said that what uh, he's experienced tracked a lot of his intuition. And that is that the filings would drop just in terms of volume, not a lot of new cases being filed. Um, or the number is at least comparatively um, down. And the types of things that are really, the types of motions and matters that are really active right now are the ones that you would completely expect and be prepared to deal with. A lot of uh, requests for release, early release, compassionate release, release on bail, and what have you. Chief Judge Wood, was there anything you wanted to add there? There's another field that I just wanted to throw into the hopper because um, it's one that's highly regulated, but really important right now if you've been watching the unemployment numbers, and that's the bankruptcy courts. The process under the bankruptcy code does require very strict deadlines, and it requires, or it seems to require, certain meetings that people have always handled as in-person meetings, the initial meeting with the creditors and so on. Many of the bankruptcy judges around the country are trying to do those meetings virtually. It seems to me overwhelmingly likely that their caseload, which has been down at about 750,000 cases a year, it's gone down from the peaks. I'm expecting it to balloon uh, in light of the economic hardship that both individuals and companies and anybody you can think of, agricultural operations, are facing. So the bankruptcy courts are going to need to figure out some um, creative ways to keep on top of their docket as much as they can right now, because it's going to be a nightmare later. Now, you both have mentioned changes to oral arguments. What are the changes that courts are making to allow these proceedings to continue? And how has the oral argument process been for you two thus far? Well, for me, it has required a certain amount of flexibility because We are dependent not only on the quality of our own telephone lines, but also on the uh, whatever technology the person at the other end is using. So I've seen a couple of times where a judge is trying to ask a question, and I think the lawyer just doesn't know that because if you can do two-way transmission, then you realize somebody's trying to break in. But if you're on a one-way transmission and then you wait for that to stop and then the next one starts, the lawyer may not know that. So what I've been trying to do since I, um, at the moment, still am chief judge, so I preside, is I'm trying not to be too rigid with time allotments. And if I've seen that that's happened a few times, uh, I'll try to just allow everyone to finish their thought. And the other thing I'm trying to do is when I hear the disembodied voice of a judge on the telephone, uh, I might at the end just literally say, you know, judge so-and-so, do you have any other points you want to raise? And and really just call on them to make sure that I'm not missing because of the technology, anything that someone wants to say. Judge Scudder? So far in the arguments that I've participated in telephonically, 
everybody's doing exactly what Chief Judge Wood described, and that is um, being flexible and gracious with uh, the time that's allotted. But one thing, though, that I would say that you lose in a telephonic argument is that if the three of us were sitting around, call it a courtroom or a conference table, and we were trying to work through an issue, there's, there's something that is unique and valuable about the interpersonal dynamic. You can just read body language. You can follow up um, on a point perhaps a bit more naturally. The loss of that telephonically or in Zoom, I don't think inhibits us in any way from getting our work done. But just the experience of it has underscored for me the value of parties coming into a courtroom and us being with our colleagues and deciding things, you know, right there kind of in the flesh and having an opportunity to talk and prove. Right. That makes sense. The Seventh Circuit is actually known for its relatively high rate of oral arguments already. By one count, the Seventh Circuit hears oral arguments in over 55% of contested cases. Do you think that other circuits are making similar decisions as you are about how to handle oral arguments, or are they moving in a different direction? Our court has always had a real preference for oral argument anyway, uh, and philosophies differ among the courts of appeals, among the circuits, but we've always been very much on the oral argument side, as long as there's a lawyer on both sides and we think we can get something from it. And that's why when this all began, uh, some of the circuits started doubly screening cases. They were already screening cases to see which ones were complex enough or in some other way deserved oral argument. We've never done that. And I decided rather than start to do that, um, we would just indicate in the same order where we said we were going to audio arguments, telephonic arguments, we would put a little encouragement for the parties. So if, the, if both parties jointly moved to waive oral argument and have the case submitted on the briefs, uh, we promised that we would take those motions very seriously. And I think that the panels are granting those motions. But I thought to put it on the parties to do that rather than the court saying, no, we're not even going to let you have your say was preferable. Let's move now into a few of the substantive issues that COVID-19 has created. Let's start with the criminal portion of your docket. So there are constitutional rights to a speedy trial embodied in the Sixth Amendment, as well as statutory rights to a speedy trial under the Federal Speedy Trial Act. How does COVID-19 affect speedy trial issues, both as a matter of statutory and constitutional law? From a statutory point of view, um, which of course is important, all seven of our district courts, meaning the court as a whole, have entered orders finding that it's in the interest of justice to postpone these dates. And the Speedy Trial Act does contain that flexibility. Obviously, it's just a statute. There's still the speedy trial provision in the Constitution, certainly more flexible and kind of a rule of thumb if it's less than a year, you're probably okay under the constitutional provision. And I cannot stress enough how devoutly I hope that we will be at the other end of this well short of a year. Um, so from a constitutional point of view, I think we're going to be okay. Um, but, but, but we do have that flexibility. Now that's going to create a a bubble of cases uh, at the other end because new cases will be coming in and the district judges are going to have to handle 
everything all at once. Judge Scudder? I think her point about the Speedy Trial Act, or the Speedy Trial issues, especially as a constitutional matter, that looms out there for somebody that's confined, um, that's detained pending trial. For somebody that's released, I don't know that they have much of an incentive, you know, to chomp at the bit to get to trial. Most most defendants are the other, you know, saying I'm not in a hurry that way. But for somebody that's detained and detained in an environment where they they may have concerns about their health um, because of what they're seeing within the facility, at some point the the constant, the outer limit on how long they can wait is going to ripen. And I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing, you know, motions filing, filed a little bit ahead of the, the general rule of thumb time that, you know, Judge Wood referenced. All those, all those issues um, are out there. Grand jury issues, for example. I don't know how easy, I don't, I, I just don't know as a matter of fact, whether the grand jury is sitting in the Northern District of Illinois, you know, here in Chicago or in other districts in the circuit or not. But People can be, surely they can be arrested and charged by complaint, but, you know, they have a right to be indicted by a grand jury constitutionally, and there's statutory time limits on that in the Speedy Trial Act. And so if grand juries aren't convened, you're going to see motions and questions like that, too, where people are objecting to just long and what they may see as indefinite extensions of time. Judge Scudder just brought up the issue of grand juries. Now, flipping this to you, Chief Judge Wood. Is it constitutional to hold a criminal jury trial by Zoom? And if not, what would in-person jury proceedings even look like these days? I'm going to answer that question cautiously because it seems to me very likely it could come before any court of appeal, any district court, any court of appeals, maybe even the Supreme Court. But in light of the, the decision that we saw this week from the Supreme Court in the Reynolds case, going back to the roots of the, the right to a jury trial in a criminal case. And of course, as you know, holding the unanimity is really baked into uh, the jury trial right. The methodology that the court used was quite historically based. And to my knowledge, nobody was using Zoom in 1791. Um, (laughs) I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Um, So there's this methodological point of view. And then there is the other thing that Judge Scudder mentioned, which is so important, which is just that intangible. You get in a criminal case, 12 people, maybe in a civil case, it's eight people or some other number of people. You get them in a room tossing ideas back and forth. And personally, I'm skeptical that that's exactly the same. Is it a good enough substitute uh, to be determined? If you just think, just take where we're at right now, what is it, April 24th, and imagine the, the, the difficulty of the mechanics of trying to get a pool of prospective jurors into the Dirksen building right now, and the sheer effort that would take, if you even could, you know, given how people um, would be commuting and what have you, it's just, it's a staggering thought to me just logistically, mechanically, I guess, practically figure out how you do that right now. And even the the issues, I think, are manifesting themselves short of trials, too. So if you look at like the CARES Act, for example, we we all know from that that, you know, there's authorizations to do things remotely. Take, for example, like a a bail request or a bond request of some kind. If you were incarcerated, one of the things that you would surely want to do is consult with your counsel you know, about what arguments are going to be made, how to put your best foot forward in the motion, whether, you know, you might want to testify and make a particular point or not. And it's probably immensely challenging for the federal facilities right now to even arrange for the video conferencing. But 
as far as I know, there there's restricted visitation. So it's not like the lawyer can go over there and do the, the video conference, you know, shoulder to shoulder with their client. Um, and the consultation would have to occur either on a separate line or a separate phone. And you run into very practical resource limitations where, you know, defendants can have very serious and very reasonable concerns about just what kind of access they have, you know, to their counsel in matters that are very serious for them. Speaking of issues that are very important to criminal defendants, there have been quite a few reports in the media that have highlighted just how overcrowded some of our jails are um, and have highlighted some of the other major health issues that are going on within correctional facilities. As judges, how does the knowledge of these facts play into your decisions regarding things like pretrial detention, sentencing, and so forth? In some ways, asking the question, Justin, um, you know, answers it in the sense that if, if any of us were, you know, representing somebody that was facing incarceration um, pre-trial or was serving a sentence and had particular health need or faced a, you know, a medical care shortage or virus outbreak in a particular facility, you'd absolutely expect. And we see just from news reports, um, if nothing else, those arguments being made. And it's it's a new circumstance, in some ways an unprecedented circumstance that's putting pressure that otherwise wouldn't be there on a detention decision. And so when you're dealing with you know somebody's life and liberty and they're pointing to something that real, it's going to be a variable and a factor. And in these times, I think a pretty serious one. I think that's all right. And I'll just, maybe we're going to get to this in a minute, but I'll flag this as one of the areas where there may be some useful long-term learning from this experience, because as judges rightly are, I'm sure, taking into account, you know, what kind of environment am I moving someone to if I'm detaining them? Maybe they're also saying, is there a lesser um, way that this person can be monitored or or whatever words you want to use to make sure that they show up for trial. Obviously, in the pretrial situation, they enjoy presumption of innocence. They haven't been convicted of anything. On the other hand, if they're dangerous to the community and dangerous to themselves, uh, there are good reasons for detaining some people. But the sheriff of Cook County, uh, Tom Dart, uh, has released unprecedented numbers of people, low-level drug uh, offenders and the like, more than a thousand, uh, as he has tried to figure out how to manage the jail. There's been litigation about that. I don't want to comment on that, but um, certainly this harder look, both on the part of judges and on the part of correctional officials such as the sheriff, may last beyond this crisis. Judge Scudder? If you want to step back a little bit and think about, you know, lessons learned, I'm sure one of the things that's going to be high on the priority list is as a matter of preparing for this going forward, making sure that the probation offices um, as kind of institutions have adequate resources and that the personnel, you know, are safe and equipped and, you know, have the kind of supports that they need to do this when you're facing a, a lot more risk and higher levels of release of people that do need to be supervised and watched, as you know, Judge Wood is pointing out. So we've now spent some time looking at the criminal side of the docket. What's going on in civil matters? Are we seeing any changes in litigation strategy in civil cases, or are parties pretty much just operating more or less as normal? We, of course, have a, an important civil docket, too, in the federal courts. Um, and there, you know, as you know, we have the Seventh Amendment, uh, right to a jury and somebody is entitled to uh, raise that 
entitlement um, if they do so in a timely manner. The Seventh Amendment has been under strain, I'll say, because a lot of people would say that the shadow of a, of a future jury trial maybe pushes people to settle or it pushes people over into alternative dispute resolution mechanisms. I do know uh, from some friends who are, in fact, doing it, that in the arbitration world right now, uh, they're doing Zoom arbitrations. You know, they, they don't want to hold up the whole process of dispute resolution, whether it's actually arbitration, whether it's mediation, whatever it may be. We have less flexibility to do that if the parties want to stand on their right to a jury trial. So I've been wondering, and I guess the statistics need to be gathered, whether we're going to see a reduction in demands for jury trial. I don't think we can do anything about the Seventh Amendment. There it is. It's it's a constitutional command, and the Supreme Court has uh, left no doubt that that's something we are obliged to observe. But the civil side, at least in terms of the supply and demand curve, is probably going to be affected by this. Judge Scudder, anything you want to add there? Chief Judge Rebecca Palmire in the Northern District of Illinois has entered, I think, for the court, really comprehensive and thorough orders that I don't know this for sure, but if I was in the other districts around the country, you'd probably look at them as a bit of a model. I mean, they're they're very top to bottom in thinking about just what arises in in civil and criminal matters. And Justin, you may have looked at this as well, but there's been you know there's been three week, four week extensions at a time of various deadlines just entered writ large across uh, the docket. You know, for hearings and status conferences and what have you. None of that, of course, is going to affect a statute of limitations. And from what I can tell and from talking to a colleague in the district court, the filings are down because people are probably just waiting to where they can get something on file and litigate it more in the ordinary course. But at some point, depending upon how this would go, you know, filings can, it may just have to tick up and then parties would hope to just put the brakes on something, get something on file and put the brakes on it. Each of you have now mentioned a few times the power of judges to delay proceedings and otherwise kind of manage the timing within their courtrooms. Where do these powers come from? Are they common law powers? Do they derive from a certain statute? Where do these powers sort of come from? I can say a word just on the so we we all know that you know you have federal rules that starts on the civil side. You have federal rules of civil procedure that serve as the overarching framework for, you know, federal civil practice. And then, of course, there's local rules, you know, that that implement in a more particular way for local considerations, the federal rules. And to my knowledge, there's there's pretty broad flexibility there with respect to just the management and the handling of uh, ordinary course deadlines that are going to appear um, in cases. In other words, the the chief judge, I think, is fully empowered to go ahead and enter the kinds of extensions that you see entered across the entire civil docket, you know, in the in the Northern District of Illinois. When you shift to criminal practice, I think there's largely that authority, but then you run in at the outer edge to some of the constitutional rights, individual rights that people have. And, you know, those issues are, are lurking as we talked about. I was hoping you could speak a little bit more about statutes of limitations. Typically, we think that plaintiffs need to bring claims in a reasonably timely manner, but COVID-19 has made that more difficult or in some cases even impossible. For some plaintiffs, it's delayed their ability to access courts, but in others, it's slowed down the plaintiff's ability to collect facts and begin assembling a case too. 
So I guess my question is, can judges toll statutes of limitations? And if so, where does this power come from? First of all, the statute of limitations has to come from someplace. It's a statute. Uh, so in the federal courts, there is a residual statute of limitations uh, of five years. There are particular statutes of limitations that apply to particular kinds of claims. And then there are certain claims, 1983, the civil rights action is the best and most used example, where the Supreme Court has told us there is no specific federal statute of limitations here. So we want you to borrow the general tort statute of limitations from your state, which leads us in the Seventh Circuit to use a two-year statute in Illinois and a two-year statute in Indiana. And it's now a four-year statute, used to be six years in Wisconsin. So that's that's one dimension of this, just the length. And so the first thing you're going to do is just say, when did the thing happen? Have you filed within the length that's prescribed? If so, we don't have to worry about anything fancy. The next thing, though, that you have to worry about is what set of things makes the claim ripe for for suit? So, you know, when does it actually accrue? And that can be very easy to see if it's like a car accident that happened on April 24th, 2020. Okay, that's when it happened. Um, things like hostile work environment claims, other kinds of claims are much trickier to see when exactly does the clock begin ticking. That's a matter of whatever law gave you the statute of limitation. So if you're borrowing state law, it's a matter of state law. Then there are two doctrines that get used uh, if you're late. Uh, and, and actually, they only come up when you're late because you don't need to fuss with them if you aren't late. But there is a doctrine of equitable tolling. Um, you see it sometimes with prisoners. You know, they'll say, oh, we were in lockdown, you know, for six months. So I wasn't able to get to the library. And so, yes, I know I'm late, but here's my reason. And you look at things like due diligence. There's a ton of law on equitable tolling. But there is this power um, in the courts to excuse you. It's not a jurisdictional thing. It's a it's a statutory matter. Uh, and then there is another aspect of things, which I don't think is terribly applicable here, but just for completeness, um, where maybe the defendant is hiding facts from the plaintiff. So the plaintiff doesn't sue in time because the defendant has actually made it impossible for the defendant to do that. So you might equitably stop the defendant from invoking the statute there. So I think where we're going to see cases is at that equitable tolling point. We're going to know what the actual length of time is, but somebody's going to say, sorry, I'm late, but I, I had a really good reason for being late. Here's what it is. And it's going to be, you know, I was in a hospital on a ventilator. That may or may not be a winning argument. It depends on a lot of other facts because you know, there's we, we, we would say there's a reason it's a two-year statute or a four-year statute or whatever, which is to give you time. And if you waited to the last minute, maybe that's on you. But, but, but it's particular facts. Let's pivot now and talk a little bit more about the future. So COVID-19 is likely to alter the types of claims that are brought before courts. Chief Judge Wood, you mentioned earlier the possibility of a surge in bankruptcy proceedings. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the press about potential litigation over force majeure clauses and contracts. What are the other substantive legal issues that are likely to arise from COVID-19? Well, you know, my crystal ball is no better than the next person, but I, I would add to your list insurance claims. There are a lot of people who are already trying to file for business interruption insurance of various types. 
the insurance companies are, are not known for welcoming such claims with open arms. And so there's likely to be litigation about the scope of coverage. A lot of insurance claims wind up in federal court because there's very often diversity of citizenship and the amount of controversy is certainly not a problem. So I'm expecting that to have an effect both on us and on our state court colleagues. So that's one thing. I would also expect a tremendous number of employment-related claims as there are reductions in force, as companies are not bringing back people, as uh, there'll probably be ERISA claims because benefits are likely to be looked at carefully and maybe not uh, treated the same way they have been before. So so those are just a few, but I, I really do expect uh, that we're going to stay busy for a while. I would add to that, I have to imagine there's a there's a group of folks out there that for whatever reason, maybe because they have an alternative source that keeps them going of, of income or funding that just out of necessity have to look to various forms of public benefits. And so we we receive on appeal, I don't know, I mean, it's a, it's a meaningful number of social security related appeals. I would think the social security office right now for various forms of benefits, including disability benefits from folks that were uh, looking elsewhere, that those numbers um, are very high. I also think, unfortunately, in, in times of crisis like this, people look to take advantage um, of others. And so we're going to see various stripes civil and criminal of fraud claims, you know, that, that are uh, popping up. What would you both say to students who are contemplating either internships or clerkships with the judiciary right now? You know, judges who are bringing on um, interns, externs, you know, and the like for the upcoming summer season are giving some thought to how to make that experience um, a meaningful one. We don't know the answer right now to the question of when the courthouse doors are going to open. And, but, you know, we face um, some logistical challenges just in terms of workspace and being able to ensure social distancing that way. But I'll just say I have three externs coming on this summer, and we've had some discussions within chambers of wanting to make that, you know, as rich and valuable and meaningful of experience as possible in these times and and certainly not um, allow these circumstances to cancel it or anything like that. And might I add, there's some internal operations of the judiciary that are already in the process of changing. So I'm on a little self-designated ad hoc committee uh, on the clerkship hiring process. It's uh, Judge Garland of the D.C. Circuit, Bob Katzman, Second Circuit, Sid Thomas of the Ninth, David Barron has just joined our little group uh, from the First Circuit, and, and myself. And what we've done this year is we have sent out a communication to all judges, practically begging them, to those who have not done so already, to go to online applications. The Oscar system has been up and running. And it's our expectation that as of June 15th, when the application period opens, that judges will do remote interviews as well. Uh, The question about bandwidth, if every judge in the country suddenly wants to be doing interviews, is a very serious one. And judges themselves are are going to need to be trained, to be willing to train, um, and to be willing to change. Those answers are very reassuring to me and I'm sure to many of my classmates too. Final question here, what from COVID-19 in the judiciary is going to stick and stay for the long term? I told you before that our practice is to sort cases into two piles, uh, those we take in the briefs and those for which we have oral argument. It has seemed likely to me, or at least possible, 
that maybe we'll sort them into three piles. Maybe we'll say, you know, this is clearly, you know, just for a, a conference of, of judges. It's pro se. There's no reason to think um, we need more process than that. Um, this group, we feel very comfortable proceeding uh, either with audio or maybe with Zoom or some comparable technology. And this group, we really want people in the courtroom. So that could happen. I have been concerned about this for a long time, not so much because of the court end of things, but because of the litigant end, because in my mind, I envision some public defender down in Benton, Illinois, which is a good six hours drive from Chicago, who has to come up, probably get a hotel room for two nights in Chicago the day before the argument and the day of, uh, all for a 10-minute aside argument on some kind of sentencing claim. There are a lot of prisons down in Southern Illinois, so we see a lot of that litigation, and then get themselves all the way back down to Benton. So they've burned up at least three days of their week for this little 10-minute aside argument. If you asked them and if they were comfortable, I don't see why we couldn't try to make a, a video or an audio argument work for them. The U.S. attorney's offices are not awash in resources either. You know, and so if you said to them, uh, how about it? Both sides, no one's going to have an advantage. Both sides are going to be on whatever the platform may be. Uh, I think that everyone is gaining experience that may make that a much better option than we ever thought it would be. Judiciary is a little bit of a stodgy institution, right? <laughs> you know, we like, we do things the way we do them, but, but this is pushing us out of our comfort zone. And I was on a conference call with the chief justice of Michigan uh, a little while back. And her phrase was, maybe there's some lemonade in this lemon. You know, maybe we really will improve things. Yeah. One point on that, you know, we, we all know that, as far as institutions slow to change, the Supreme Court of the United States may be at the top of everyone's <laughs> list. It's been a long, long-running debate. You know, any of what perspective you have about courtroom uh, cameras in the courtroom and live streaming and all that. And the court, as we know, is going to take up a, a couple uh, of their sessions of of argument remotely. You know, I don't, I don't envy the Chief Justice, right? Because that's going to put a ton of pressure going forward on more. Um, live access and alternative forms um, of access that way. The other thing that I was going to mention that I don't know that would, you know, Justin would come to mind, but it's it's real um, and perhaps a, a touch behind the scenes for courts as institutions. And that is just making sure that we have the IT infrastructure and the IT capacity to support remote access and to support remote remote access that's both efficient and secure. And, you know, I'm I'm on our on the Information Technology Committee for the Judiciary. And times like these really ripen questions about are we equipping people, you know, with laptops, iPads, phones, et cetera, that we have a lot of confidence in can be secure? Are we confident that our remote connections, you know, have complete um, integrity about them, et cetera? And do they have the capacity and the bandwidth to handle the kind of volume you know, that you experience in times like these. None of this was, you know, ever pressure tested um, in the way that it's being tested now. And so we're sure to have a lot of lessons learned on those fronts as well. That's unfortunately all the time we have. Judge Scudder and Chief Judge Wood, thank you so much for coming on briefly, and I hope we can talk soon. Thank you very much, Justin. It was a pleasure. Thanks. This has been Briefly, a podcast of the University of Chicago Law Review. 
Follow us on Twitter at YouShyElRev and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks, and we'll see you soon for the next episode of Briefly Season 4.